Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, 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 and thank you for joining me for this uh, Cybersecurity TLDR Threat Intel Briefing for the week of June 19th through June 25th. 2022. I'm your host, John Good, and this is where we talk all about cybersecurity training. We do interviews. We do all the stuff that you need to make sure that your career is good to go. So if you are joining us on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe this video to uh, like the video and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss future content. And also make sure to hit that bell icon so that you get notified when new stuff comes out. If you're watching or listening rather on podcasting platforms, Make sure that you subscribe and that you leave us a review and let us know how we're doing as well. So with that, let's get into the articles. So the very first article, the U.S. Department of Justice, the DOJ, announced to have uh, shut down the infrastructure associated with the Russian botnet RSOX. So I'm not sure if you've heard of this RSOX botnet yet. It's been a little bit all over the news. But the U.S. Department of Justice, the DOJ, announced to have shut down the infrastructure associated with the Russian botnet RSOX as part of an international police operation that involved uh, law enforcement partners from Germany, the Netherlands, and the U.K. The RSOX was composed of millions of compromised computers and other electronic devices around the world, including industrial control systems, time clocks, routers, audio-video streaming devices and smart garage door openers. So if you're not familiar with what like botnets are in general, basically it's the idea of we have all these internet of things devices, typically, it can be computers too, but so things like your your Nest uh, thermostat, your smart thermostat, your garage door openers, your refrigerators, like all this stuff, they have computers in them, they have operating systems in them, and typically they're connected to the internet, And so what happens is if an attacker can take over these, they can utilize that power on those because typically, you know, in a computer in general, you're not using all the resources and especially on devices like these, these computer, uh, these refrigerators and internet of things devices, you're not always using all that power so they can harness that power and then they can use that to attack a system, a victim computer, a server, a company, whatever it is. So that's basically the idea here. Now, the operators behind the R6 botnet offered their clients access to IP addresses assigned to devices that had been compromised to route internet traffic. So they're basically um, leasing it out, if you will, right? Clients of the RSOX botnet could pay a fee to its operators by using a web browser to navigate a web-based storefront, i.e. a public website, so somewhere where they can go on there and they can just sign up which allowed them to rent access to a pool of proxies. So again, they're kind of leasing it out or renting it out for a specified period of time. So a day, a month, a year, whatever it is, right? Uh, The cost to access the pool of RSOX proxies range from $30 per day to access uh, 2,000 proxies to $200 a day to access 90,000 proxies. Now, the nice thing with proxies especially too is that with a proxy, the idea is that you can hide who you are that's going through that or who's accessing that. So if I were to access a proxy, you would not be able to see my actual source IP address. You would see whatever proxy that I was going through. It's kind of like a VPN service, 
if you're familiar with that. So you connect to a VPN server, and then maybe that connects to another VPN server, but um, you know it's hiding what uh, where you're coming from. So that that's kind of the idea, and that's typical with a lot of these uh, services or these botnets because you don't want people to know where you're attacking from, right? And uh, it you know the DOJ cracked down on it. So you know these services. It's so interesting because these services they typically don't last that long, right? They, um, they're up and they do some stuff and then they get cracked down on, right? It just, their, um, life cycle is very, very short typically. So, and then we see another one pop up or they shift and, you know, so. All right. So moving on here, uh, capital one attacker exploited, misconfigured AWS databases. The 36-year-old Seattle tech worker behind the infamous 2019 Capital One breach has been convicted on seven, seven charges related to data theft, which is punishable up to 20 years in jail. Ms. Thompson used her hacking skills to steal the personal information of more than 100 million people and hijack computers to mine cryptocurrency. Okay, said uh, U.S. Attorney Nick Brown in a statement. Far from being an ethical hacker trying to help companies with their computer security, she exploited mistakes to steal valuable data and sought to enrich herself. According to a uh, Department of Justice statement, Thompson spent hundreds of hours advancing her scheme and bragged about her illegal conduct to others via text or online forms. So, a couple things to pick apart here, right? First of all, if you're not following uh, how the legislation, especially like in the U.S. here, is evolving, there has been some legislation where the idea is that they're no longer going, uh, the government's no longer going to charge or prosecute uh, ethical hackers, basically, that are acting in good faith, right? So people that are really trying to help companies and they, you know, just happen to uncover some bugs or vulnerabilities or something like that. And so that, I think that one statement is pretty you know, pretty important, right? Far from being an ethical hacker, right? That kind of aligns. And uh, the other thing is that the last statement about bragging about their illegal conduct via text or online forms. So I, that is one thing that we really see with a lot of these attackers and attacks is people want to get noticed. They, they want to brag about what they've done, right? They, they want to they wanna tell the world. But... <clears throat> Typically, that you know leads to their downfall. So, uh, <laughs> but but um, you know, uh, yeah. So it it's so amazing how you know all these attackers that go out there and they do whatever, right? And they they just repeat mistakes. Like they repeat mistakes that other people have made. It's crazy, right? Like you would think that somebody would learn from the mistakes of others, right? Like that's how we get through life, right? We learn from mistakes of others and then we do better. Uh, that doesn't ever seem to happen in the hacking world. Like sometimes their techniques get better, but then they also, they always end up just revealing themselves because they're like, yes, I did that. I want the credit for that because I am awesome. Like, Yeah, if you're not on YouTube, we, we have a comment. 
<laughs> comment. Maybe the, uh, those attackers were amateurs uh, using Google Guides. I mean, that's possible. This person actually, um, uh, this one was not. Um, so uh, here, here's this. Form, uh, former Amazon employee convicted in Capital One hack. So she actually were, um, uh, let's see here. So former web, Amazon Web Service employee was convicted of hacking Capital One and stealing the data. So yeah, so this is the um, same article or different article, but same thing. But yeah, she worked at AWS. And this is kind of spilling over to this next article, but Paige Thompson, who worked for the software giant as an, uh, as an engineer until 2016, was found guilty on several uh, seven federal crimes, including fraud, uh, wire fraud, which carries up to 20 years of prison charges. Uh, the other charges included illegally accessing a protected computer and damaging a protected computer are punishable up to five years. A jury found Thompson not guilty of aggravated identity theft and uh, access device fraud after 10 years of deliberations, a release said. She wanted data, she wanted money, and she wanted to brag. The uh, U.S. attorney Andrew Friedman said of Thompson in closing arguments during the week-long trial. So yeah, so that was the fo uh, follow-up article that I found uh, for that. But yeah, so she worked at AWS, right? So she was not like um, what we would think of as a low-level tech person, right? Like um, a low-tech IQ, I guess, if you will. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but, you know, it, we do see people that are doing this stuff that are lower-level, uh, low, lower-tech IQ uh, people, so more kind of like that script kitty uh, environment or group, if you if you will, where they like use tools that other people you know have generated and aren't necessarily creating their own tools. Um, but you know, I think it's all over the spectrum, especially with some of the stuff like where the ransomware and stuff like that, where some of these more sophisticated attacks. Obviously, the people that create those, you know, are pretty pretty up there as well as far as their technical IQ. All right. So next article, automation, direct patches, vulnerabilities, and PLC HMI products. So the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISAs, informed organizations that Automation Direct has patched several high-severity vulnerabilities in some of the program, uh, programmable logic controllers, PLCs, and human-machine interface products. So this deals with a lot, uh, a lot with industrial control systems. So if you're not familiar with that, that's like um, the power grid and things like that. If you're also interested in that too, make sure that you go check out my interview that I did with Gabriel or Struggle Security. We just did that uh, earlier this week. And that was really, really uh, interesting. It was a really good interview because he actually works in industrial control systems and uh, securing those. So just check that out as well. But uh, coming Georgia-based Automation Direct provides a wide range of industrial control systems. The company sells it directly in the United States and Canada, but the products are sold to organizations in other regions of the world, including international distributors. Some uh, direct logic devices with Ethernet communication modules are affected by two flaws announced they can be exploited by an attacker who has access to the controller by sending spe uh, specially crafted packets that cause the device to enter a denial of service condition or to cause a controller to return its password in clear text. Password can then be used to 
uh, for, by the attacker to access the controller and make you know whatever kind of changes they want to do. So with these kind of systems, these industrial control systems, especially in these controllers, you know, if you can take over those, if you can exploit those, you know, that's really bad, right? This has been, you know, an ongoing issue and an ongoing concern for several years, especially since things like Stuxnet and some other stuff that's happened. Uh, and if you're not familiar with those, you know, check them out, especially Stuxnet, because that's a pretty, pretty recent example, but there's been others as well. Um, but you know, the ability to affect industrial control systems, power grids, things like that, you could wipe out, you know, industrialized uh, and developed country, right? United States, uh, countries in Europe, you know, these countries that have established industries and established power grid systems, a lot of it's getting connected. So if you're going to be able to impact that or, you know, access it and do some damage, you can you know, you could cause some serious issues. This isn't just like to that single company that you're, uh, that you're compromising. This is like the industry or the country as a whole. So yeah. Um, again, check out the interview I did with Gabriel struggle security, because, uh, that is really interesting with regards to industrial control systems and, you know, working in there and cybersecurity. Next article, overconfidence and API security posture leaves enterprises at high risk. So the Radware 2022 State of API Security Report uh, reveals that API usage is rising. 92% of the organization's survey have significantly or somewhat increased their API usage with 59% already running most of their applications in the cloud. Almost 90% of organizations use APIs or communication between workloads and systems, highlighting the growing resilience on APIs and day-to-day business operations. So if you don't know what API is, basically a lot of these software applications, they have these uh, application programmable interfaces, so these APIs, and you can interact with that API kind of like, um, it's like a web address, right? So you can send and receive information depending on how it's set up, and that information could make changes, it could read information back to you, uh, all kinds of stuff, right? So a lot of software applications have these out there. But um, 92, while 92% of the surveyed believe that adequate protection for their APIs and 70% uh, they have visibility into applications that are processing sensitive data, 62% admit a third or more of the APIs are undocumented. Undocumented APIs leave organizations vulnerable to cyber threats such as database exposures, data breaches, and scraping attacks. I mean, yeah, that, that's pretty, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, undocumented APIs, right? So it's not somewhere that you can use this API. It doesn't explicitly state what kind of permissions sh- you should have. Typically, when things aren't documented like this, like the uh, APIs or, you know, in general, some of these processes or things like that that could exist, Usually there's less focus on that, which means there's also probably uh, more ability than it should have because there's just not any focus on it, right? Um, If you have an API that's completely open and it's kind of like a backdoor, uh, you know, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, And I think in general, you know, companies aren't that great with their security anyways, uh, depending on which company. But, um, 
you know, protecting your APIs is really important and you have to have them documented. And I think that goes back to application security, you know, reviewing your applications, doing things like penetration testing against them, whether that's internal or external, you should be doing both. But just the ability to find some of this stuff because you don't want, you know, this undocumented kind of channel or tunnel backdoor into your software application to be abused by attackers because you failed to document it and failed to appropriately secure it. Like that's just crazy, right? So anyways, uh, Mega says it can't decrypt your files. New POC exploit shows otherwise. In the decade since larger than life, chem.com founded Mega, the cloud storage has amassed 250 million registered users. So up to 150 billion files. So that's 1,000 petabytes of storage. That's a ton. Uh, So their key selling point is growth, an extraordinary promise that no top-tier mega competitor uh, can make. Not even mega can decrypt the data it stores. So uh, on the company's webpage, for instance, they display an image that compares its offering to Dropbox, Google Drive, and so on. In addition to noting lower prices, the comparison emphasizes that Mega offers end-to-end encryption. Now, the author says uh, that architecture Mega use encrypted files. The uh, author of this article and report, uh, Encrypt Files, is riddled with fundamental cryptography flaws that makes it trivial for anyone with control of the platform to perform a full key recovery attack on users once they've logged in in a sufficient number of times. With that, the malicious party can decipher stored files or even upload incriminating or otherwise malicious files to an account that look like uh, uh, that look indistinguishable from genuinely uploaded files. So anytime you're dealing with encryption in general, that's a huge deal, right? If I bring my own keys, right, or I generate keys, I should know exactly where the copies of those keys are. Right, so if I generate a public and a private key, I should know where the, uh, the, especially that private key is at, right? And I should have control over that. If we use a like a symmetric key, right? So it's the same key. Uh, I should know where that's stored, right? I should know where that's housed, and you shouldn't be able to decrypt that information without that key, right? And so it's that whole idea of really protecting the data. And when you use a service like this, so this Mega or Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive or whatever, right? Uh, you're a little bit relying on that vendor that there's some security in there, right? I mean, that's typical, I would think. <laughs> but, um, you know, pretty, being able to pretty much easily decrypt information that you store on a cloud provider like that, that's pretty scary. Um, that doesn't instill a lot of trust in that vendor from a, an encryption standpoint, right? So protecting the confidentiality of that data, but then also it makes you think about what else are they doing or not doing in their infrastructure, right? So if they're not going to, um, if they're not going to protect, you know, all their, <laughs> if they're not going to like, it's just, you know, I, If they're not going to protect your data and anybody can decrypt it, that's pretty not good. (laughs) I don't even know what else to say about it. I would not want to use this vendor, right? That's just, um, it's just concerning. So, yeah. 
So uh, let's see here. Pegasus used by at least five EU countries. NSO group tells lawmakers. So the Israeli spy group, uh, NSO, told European lawmakers at least five country, five EU countries have used the software and the firm has terminated at least one contract with one EU member country following uh, abuse of its Pegasus surveillance system. So if you're not familiar with Pegasus, uh, basically it's this, it's um, a surveillance kind of software that's made by this Israeli group. And I think just in general, you know, a lot of this kind of software is under a lot of scrutiny, especially as people start to figure out or find out about it. Um, if I recall right, I think there was even an article that L3 Harris was trying to buy the software uh, from the vendor. So um, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But, um, you know, anything like this is, is definitely under high scrutiny. We've seen a lot of issues where, you know, it's been discovered that there was maybe a little bit more monitoring or surveillance than there should have been in certain countries. And there was even a, uh, an issue in Spain, I believe it was, <clears throat> where um, some of the leaders were being surveilled, uh, apparently. And so a lot of this kind of software is pretty interesting to kind of follow the path, you know, and see what's happening. because. Uh, even on this, it says to fight off the fierce criticism, NSO Group stressed it was eager to see the creation of an international body of spyware regulation, something similar to a non-proliferation agreement where only countries that agree to establish rules will be able to use the technology. So, you know, especially on software like this where it's developed by another country probably than where you live or where you're going to use it or acquire it, uh, you know, within that country. Um <clears throat> allowing this external group to kind of set policy about it. It's like, ah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of suspicious things around all this kind of stuff. Eh, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's probably back doors or something in it too. Right. That's just how it is. So, <clears throat> all right, let's go through here and let's see what else we have that we need to cover. So uh, Fancy, Beer, Fancy Bear uses Nuke Threat Lure to exploit one-click bug. The APT is pairing a known Microsoft flaw with a malicious document to load malware that nabs credentials from Chrome, Firefox, and Edge browsers. So advanced persistent threat group Fancy Bear is behind a phishing campaign that uses a specter of nuclear war to exploit that one-click vulnerability. The goal is to deliver malware that steals credentials from Chrome, Firefox, and Edge browsers. And they're using Felina. So if you don't know what Felina is, it's CVE 2022-30190. Highly recommend you look it up. It's one of the recent vulnerabilities that is really um, making a huge impact within the industry and uh, cybersecurity in general. But, um, you know, this is... We're starting to kind of see it come out a little bit more. Um, it, typically, what's been happening with a lot of these big known vulnerabilities is that they are being announced and they're being released, but then, um, but then they're not really being exploited or at least visibly for a little bit, right? And uh, again, this is kind of the first one that we're starting to see with uh, Felina. Um, I think we're going to see more and more as time goes. You know, it's just how it is. People wait for 
they don't like to exploit it right away. They like to kind of wait and see, you know, who doesn't patch systems because those are typically even easier targets, right? Like if you wait six months or a year after a patch gets released and somebody still hasn't installed it, they're probably going to be a super easy target. You can have a target that, you know, is super sophisticated and something comes out, they patch it uh, in a month or, you know, whatever, they're on top of their patching policy. If you try to exploit that right away, you're probably going to run into some other walls. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense as far as the strategy. And, um, you know, so I guess we'll just kind of see what happens with this. We'll see how much it comes up in these news uh, threat intel briefings, right? We'll keep an eye on it for sure. Uh, let's see here. Blockchains vulnerable to centralized control. DARPA reports fine. Report finds. The report conducted in partnership with the research firm Trail of Bits specifically points to a handful of unintended centralities. The, uh, the author argues can potentially concentrate blockchain power in the hands of a few select individuals or groups. Those unintended centralities range from powerful new cryptocurrency miners and outdated computers vulnerable to attacks to a select cohort of internet service providers responsible for handling Bitcoin. So if you're not familiar with Bitcoin or, um, sorry, uh, cryptocurrency in general rather, and blockchains, right? The idea is that there is no central control, right? Typically what we think of as a, a network or anything like that, a bank, right? There's a central entity that kind of controls a lot of this stuff. With blockchains and the cryptocurrency world and all this stuff, the idea is that there is no central you know, location. There, uh, it's kind of reliant on the chain, the entire organization or the entire network rather. And so if you can start taking over and sort of act as that central unit, that centralized power, then you can start controlling other stuff. Well, that's a serious issue in just the, the fundamental um, foundation of how blockchains work, right? That is an insecure blockchain. And you have different kinds of blockchains too, right? Like if you, if you look out there, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of setups and implementations and attempted implementations of this stuff. But, you know, that goes against the fundamental core uh, value of blockchains, right? Getting away from that centralized control. It's decentralized, right? So um, again, we keep seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff with cryptocurrency and blockchains. And even this, it says, we believe the risks inherent in blockchains and cryptocurrencies has been poorly described and often, uh, and often ignored or even mocked by those seeking to cash in on the decades gold rush, right? There's this quick rush to getting this product and getting this amazing thing, this amazing uh, network that's decentralized and then not focusing as much on everything else, right? You know, I think that's pretty true in a lot of software organizations, product organizations, right? You get a rush to the product and then historically there hasn't been a lot of focus on how you secure that and how you do some of this other stuff until it's really uh, kind of announced itself as, you know, a presence, as something that people want. It's something that works and then you kind of try to bolt on or add the security and then you end up with like the internet, right? Where there's not a lot of security that was originally built in and we've had to really scale up 
and bolts on some additional security measures. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing going into the future for sure. Biden signs a pair of cybersecurity bills into law. So I really wanted to focus on this article or bring this article up for uh, our cybersecurity career people. So people looking to get into careers or you know, they're interested in cybersecurity. The Bipartisan State and Local Cybersecurity Act will allow the cybersecurity and CISA, so the uh, or, sorry, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is CISA, to offer state and local actors access to upgrade digital security tools and procedures. It also boosts the multi-state information sharing and analysis center to help prevent and respond to digi- future digital incidents. The president also signed off on Bipartisan Federal Rotation Cybersecurity Workforce Program Act, which uh, establishes a rotational cyber workforce development program across several government agencies in an effort to compete with the uh, usually more lucrative private sector. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because rotational programs are pretty awesome because if you can get in those, you can experience a lot of different aspects of things. And specifically with the, the government, you know, they have a lot of different areas that you could get into because they are basically like a large organization, a large entity. And this is kind of an interesting way to get into cybersecurity. If you're, you know, if you're looking to get in there, um, I always recommend trying to get into one of these rotational programs, especially if you're first starting out, because typically, you know, these programs are built to bring in people that are very fresh, very new. And then um, you can actually get spun up throughout the process because you get to learn about, um, you know, all the different areas. You know, typically a lot of them that I've seen have around four or so different areas and you spend, you know, three to six months or something in a specific position or specific area. And then you rotate into another spot. And that just, it gives you a well-rounded experience instead of just going into a job being in there for six to six months to a year and be like, I don't like this. I'm going to switch to another job or another company or whatever. This actually gets you to fresh environments and fresh jobs within this program. So uh, I would definitely look at that if you're interested in getting into cybersecurity or if you're already working for the government, right? Because that will be a cool program if they do it right. And then the last article that I want to hit on is 7-Zip now supports Windows Mark of the Web security feature. When you download documents and executables from the web, uh, Windows adds this zone ID alternate uh, alternate data stream to the file, and it's called Mark of the Web. So if you look at this article, it, it kind of shows you where you can see that, but basically it's in the properties, and at the very bottom, um, they show a picture where there's um, basically like this indicator that says that you got a you know, Mark of the Web, right? That's what it is. Um, so when you attempt to download a, a file, Windows will check to see if this mark of the web exists. And if so, it's going to you know, display those, those warnings, right? Like I said, uh, Marcus, uh, Microsoft Office will also check for the mark of the web. And if found, it will open up documents in protected view with the file in read-only and macros disabled. So if you're ever seeing this in files that you're opening, that's what's going on basically behind the scenes, right? Like this is a, um, this is not a feature that's been around forever, but it is something that we're, we're seeing, you know, in modern operating systems. So to check if a download file has the mark of the web, you can right click on it and you'll see it in the properties. 
Previously, if you downloaded an archive from the internet and extracted it with 7-zip, the mark of the web would not propagate to the extracted files and Windows would not treat these extracted files as risky. So that's kind of where the issue is or the thing that this article is focusing on. So 7-zip, really popular unzipping program. And you can you know unzip zip files and do all this other kind of stuff with it too. But um, you know that's a serious issue, right? Because a lot of people use 7-zip to unzip files and programs and things like that. And if you were doing it before, you wouldn't get that additional benefit from Windows. And you know it, there's no way to maintain that, right? Like once you export it, there's no way to undo that. It's just going to show it as a trusted file. And then all of a sudden you're extracting uh, or executing some of this stuff. So I would say this is really important for definitely for home users, right? But especially businesses, you have to make sure that you have the most up-to-date uh, 7-zip software if it's on your system, because that's a big vulnerability, right? Like that's a big issue. And you're kind of bypassing some of those Windows features that you expect to be in there. I mean, there's other controls and things like that sh that should be in place, not just uh, free reign to uh, extract or unzip uh, folders and then run some of these files. But, you know, uh, just thought I'd bring that up because I know that 7-Zip is really, really popular uh, among, you know, the world, right? A lot of users. So really important to bring up. So uh, that is going to be it for our uh, threat Intel briefing for this week. Again, this was cybersecurity TLDR, your threat Intel briefing for June 19th, 2022 through June 25th, 2022. I am your host, John Good. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to leave a like and subscribe to the channel as well as hit that bell icon so you get all the content that I release as we go forward. And there's a bunch of content on the way. Uh, also, make sure to check out a bunch of our interviews that we have, too, that are coming up because uh, we just did one with Gabriel Struggle Security. We have one coming up with Kevtech. We also are going to have one with Grant Collins. So, And there's a lot of other stuff that's on the way, too. So we got a lot of exciting stuff. And then also, if you're listening to us on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and uh, leave us a review as well. And with that being said, I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and I will see you next time.